Is God cruel? So I want to pick up this story. We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 3. John the Baptist is baptizing people. Crowds are coming out to see him in the wilderness. Let's pick it up in verse number 10. What should we do then, the crowds asked John the Baptist. And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. But when John, picking up in verse number 19 and 20, it says, but when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, now Herod's the ruler, right? He's the ruling power in the land of Israel at this time. Because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Here's a question today. Is God cruel? So I want to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible because it's going to help us to put some things in place here. Then we're going to come back to Luke chapter 3 and the important information that I just read right here. Okay. So at the very beginning of the Bible, God creates two very special trees. One is the tree of life. That's the good tree. And one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the one we're told to stay away from. Now, we as readers are told about both the trees. But Adam and Eve are only told about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, don't touch it. Don't eat from it. Say, stay, stay away from that tree. You don't want anything to do with that, with that tree at all. And here's where it's a little like, first of all, if the tree of life is so good, why didn't God inform them of the tree of life and say, hey, you're going to want to eat from that tree all day long. And God says, eat from all the trees except for that one tree, the knowledge of good and of evil. But if God wants us to be successful, why would God even create the tree in the first place? The one that we're supposed to stay away from. I mean, it just causes all kinds of failures and problems. So God, if you want us to be successful and not fail, why make the tree in the first place? And then I'll add something else to it. Isn't the knowledge of good and evil a good thing? Like, don't we want people to be able to distinguish between good and evil? I think people who can't distinguish between good and evil are called sociopaths. So what's going on here? Haven't you ever wondered, hasn't this ever bothered you? God, why create that tree in the first place? Okay, so today, this is this is what we want to talk about, right? Why did God create the tree in the first place? And what does this have to do with relationships? Now, as I said, week number three is all about the tree. What does the tree have to do with this? And why does it feel so cruel to us? Is it really cruel what God does? Well, here's the thing. All healthy relationships have boundaries. You can read a lot about relationships and you can read there is a plethora of boundary books, right? There's boundaries in dating, boundaries in marriage, boundaries in parenting, boundary of friends, boundaries with work, boundaries with leaders. There's boundaries. There's so many boundaries books. And what it all comes down to is that all healthy relationships have boundaries. This is what they all have in common. That's where the tree comes in. 
The key to all this is the tree. Right from the start, if the Bible is a relationship book, and boy, from the words of Jesus Christ, it sure seems like it is. That's the primary factor here, the main message that's a relationship book. And now we read it through that lens, we see that God is saying, hey, the tree is my boundary. Right? You, you can have all the trees. You can go anywhere you want in the garden. But I need to teach you right from the start of the Bible this key principle that all healthy relationships have, and the Bible's a relationship book, that you gotta have boundaries. You need to learn about boundaries. You gotta learn when to stop. So this is what God is saying, and it's so wise. I want you to think about this for a second. My wife, Krista, so when she's having a tough day or she's frustrated about something, I have found that my immediate reaction just comes from inside of me is that I just want to go and I want to hug her. I just want to hug her and say, it's okay. Hug her and hold her and kiss her. It's okay. But when she's frustrated, you know what she says to me? She says, I don't want that right now. Stand back and just listen to me. Just listen to me. Man, what do you do when a woman says no? You stop. You stop. When a woman says, no, you stop. That's what you're supposed to. That's a good boundary. That's a healthy boundary. That's an important boundary. Boundaries are a great thing. Do you have boundaries? God is saying it's really important that we, as human beings, to have healthy relationships, we need to learn about healthy boundaries. And this is where the tree comes in. So all of a sudden, God goes from being really cruel to being really kind to us. Because if we're going to have great relationships, and that's vital, to have a good life, if we're going to have the best life possible, then we need to have healthy boundaries in order to have healthy relationships, okay? Now, how about this one? Maybe what God is saying here, because there's layers deep about this tree situation, right? Maybe what God is saying is, look, okay, okay, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eventually maybe you can eat from that tree, just not yet. Do we ever do that? You ever been to a home that's been baby-proofed? What do you baby-proof in a home? They seem to all begin with the letter S. Socket, stairs, and stoves, right? And what do you do when you put the gates up, right? And you're creating all these boundaries and barriers so kids can't get to it. Hey, you, you, you don't say a bunch of words to a kid. You don't try to say to a little infant baby, let me explain gravity to you so you don't fall down the steps. Or you don't say, let me explain electricity to you so you don't electrocute yourself in the socket. You just say one word. You say no. And then you create boundaries all over the place. Well, maybe this is the same thing happening here. What if God is saying, okay, eventually there'll come a time when you can eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but just not yet because we do the same thing with kids. We put a boundary and we say, you know what? That's smart. I'm not taking my baby to a home that hasn't been baby-proofed. That's just wise. Now, all of a sudden, God goes from being from cruel to being really, really kind and thoughtful. Here's something else here. What about objective truth versus subjective truth? I want to read you something that somebody wrote on our YouTube page. I had done a message about purpose, and they wrote this. Human beings create purpose that aligns with their values and passion to find meaning. It's not a scroll from heaven. It's not some treasure chest to be found, nor is it a mandate from God. Now, look, that sounds great. Yes, I choose my purpose. I don't need God telling me this stuff. I'll figure it out myself. Some about that just feels right and it feels good. When I take a moment 
and I think and I think and I think about history and I look back through the course of history, I say, that's very dangerous, like really dangerous because one person hears their passion and their values. Maybe they are after money. A lot of people after money. Maybe they're after power. A lot of people after power and to get money and power or sex, right? Three big ones. I have to trample over this person or these people in order to get it. Subjective truth is dangerous. In order for us to have healthy relationship, we're going to have to have some type of objective truth rather than us deciding. God says, it's my tree. It's my boundary. It's my objective truth. And you need to respect my boundaries. Now, how did the snake get Adam and Eve to break the boundary? Okay, here is the foundation for all relations. The foundation for all relations. Elohim and Yahweh. So in Genesis chapter 1 up to chapter 2, verse number 3, God is called Elohim over and over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, God gets a new name, Yahweh, starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse number 4. And here is where it all breaks down. Here is how the snake gets Adam and Eve to break the boundary which leads to death and misery. How does it happen? Elohim and Yahweh. Let me explain, okay? Elohim. There are two names here in Genesis 1 and 2 for God. Now, when people have looked at this, like when I went to seminary, I was told, hey, the Bible had two different people writing Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. They're two different stories with two different names. Two different understanding. They're totally out of sync. So the Bible's kind of out of sync with each other. But hey, okay, you know, let's let's keep studying and see what's going on here. When in actuality, what's happening here? That theory, very weak theory. It's been debunked on dates. Okay, just by the dating system. Okay, but if you actually look at it side by side, you see its brilliance. It's absolute brilliance. Matter of fact. Modern day relationship experts will tell you, you need the delicate balance between Elohim and Yahweh to have a healthy relationship. Isn't that absolutely amazing? What is Elohim? Elohim is pure power. What you see in Genesis chapter one is God is creating, he's separating, and he's declaring. He's declaring things that are good. There's nothing that's bad because when you have pure power, when you have all the power, you just extinguish, you get rid of everything that's bad. All you have is good stuff because the bad stuff is removed. So God, by his power, creates and he separates and he declares good or bad. Now, what's important to say here is God has power, but God is not power. God has power, but God is not power. You ever read, if maybe you've read in the Bible, maybe you've read, there's a famous scene in the Bible, it's called the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, right? And I, my understanding of the Bible is there are no other gods. Like there's only one God and God is God. There's one God. There's only, but here's how Exodus 20, the famous Ten Commandments begins, right? It says in verse number two, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Whoa, t- time out, time out. Which one is it? Is there just one God or are there many gods? 
You shall have no other gods, Elohim, before me. So I'm really confused here. Are we in a world with lots of gods, lots of Elohim? Yes. Lots of Elohim in this world. Lots of gods. Because the word Elohim is a generic word for power. So in Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, Elohim, power. God who has power who has power, began to create the heavens and the earth. There's a lot of things that have power today. People have power. Money has power. Sex is powerful, right? Then there's positions of power. Power is power. Matter of fact, in Exodus 22, we're talking about judges, judges, like these people who would judge. And in Exodus 22, it says, If the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges. The owner of the house must appear before the Elohim. That's the word that is used. It's a generic term. It's not an exclusive term for the name of God. It's a generic term used for power. We got to get that straight. So God has power. God has the most power, but God is not power. It's very, very different. God's name is not Elohim. God's essence is not Elohim. God's essence is something else. So Elohim is a generic name for power. God has power. People have power. Judges have power. And power divides. Now, power feels really good. That's how the snake got Adam and Eve to break the boundary they should have never broken before. In Genesis chapter one, there's all kinds of chaos. But what does power do? Power comes in and just begins to separate, separate, separate all over the place, declaring things good or evil, right? Separation. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter two, everything is so nice and neat and clean and separated. Death, death is very close at hand. Matter of fact, Paul writes, the letter of the law, right? The power of the law, is death. The letter is death, but the spirit brings life. Now, let's see if we can bring all this back together. Yahweh. Here's the other name used for God. Genesis chapter 2, Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. It means love, compassion, kindness, and grace. Matter of fact, we're told that Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 came full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are opposites. Power and compassion are also opposites. It's a delicate balance. And this is where our modern day relationship experts come in and say, you've got to figure out the gentle balance, the delicate balance between power and compassion, between grace and truth, between Elohim and Yahweh. It's the only way to have a healthy relationship. So Yahweh has compassion. What do judges do? If you stand before a judge in a court of law, a judge looks at the past. They look at the past and they judge you on what have you done before? What is the truth about what you have done? Okay. What does Yahweh do? Because that is God's specific name. No one else is called Yahweh in the Bible. This is God's name. It is God's essence. God is love. God is compassion. What does compassion do? Compassion looks at your future. It's the same word in Hebrew for womb. It's what your potential can be. So power, truth, a judge says, what have you done? And God says, what can you become? 
What can you become? And we have to notice the difference between the two. It's a very delicate balance. Now, how did the snake get them to break the boundary? Here it is, Genesis chapter 3. This is where you get the snake. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals. The Lord, Yahweh, God, Elohim, had made. He said to the woman, did Elohim, no Yahweh, did power really say to you, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What the snake has done in Genesis 3, 1 is this. God is his name. God's name is Yahweh. That is a very specific name of God. Nothing else in the Bible is called Yahweh. That is God's name. Elohim is a generic name for power. You can be Elohim. I can be Elohim. Money is Elohim. Lots of things are Elohim. But God's name in scripture specifically is Yahweh. And so here we see that God made the snake. Yahweh, Elohim made the snake. What the snake does is the snake drops Yahweh, the specific name of God, which God of love and of power, right? The generic, and just says, God is only power. So in a world of power ruled by a God that's only power and not Yahweh will be a world of death. And so God gets him, says, you know what? Adam and Eve, you need power too. God does, God's not a God of love. He's not thinking about what's best for you. He's keeping the tree from you because he's keeping power from you. And he gets them to drop this idea of a God of love and exchange it for pure power. And in a world of pure power, you just go after the, it's, it's the law of the jungle. Might makes right. You want power. So God has kept power from you. And you want to also judge good and evil because that's power. When I judge something, I'm powerful. And the snake says, that's all that exists is power. The snake changed God's name, changed God's essence from love to power and got them to cross that boundary. Now look what happens. Genesis chapter three, verses eight to 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Check this out, everybody. And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. What's the first? What's the first emotion? after they break the boundary. I was afraid, I was afraid. Okay, straight out of Dr. Marissa Franco's book, Platonic, you can read about attachment styles all over the place. I'm gonna pull from what she says, but they're gonna be very consistent. Let me give you a brief description. All of us have a dominant, attachment style, okay? But then we can move in and out. There's three of them. We can move in and out. I'm gonna read them to you. Which one are you? Which one predominantly are you? Here's secure attachment. This is what we want to be. Secure people assume they are worthy of love and others can be trusted to give it to them. This belief comes from an unconscious template that trickles into all their relationships. Relationships leading them to give Others, the benefit of the doubt, open up, ask for what they need, support others, and assume others like them, and they achieve intimacy. That is a secure attachment. 
Do you have a secure attachment style? Here's the other two. Anxious attachment. People who are anxiously attached assume others will abandon them. To keep themselves from being abandoned, they act clingily and are overly sacrificing to accommodate others or plunge into intimacy too rapidly. That's anxious. Anxious. Here is avoidant attachment. Avoidantly attached people are similarly afraid. Notice the word, similarly afraid. So both anxious and avoidant are motivated, are driven by fear. They're afraid others will abandon them. But instead of clinging to avoid this outcome, they keep others at a distance. Intimacy signals to them that they could be hurt. So they push others away, eschew vulnerability, and leave relationships prematurely. All right, did you pick that up? Is that fascinating or what? Is the Bible flat out amazing or what? Adam and Eve, first thing when they break the barrier, when God goes from no longer being a God of love to just a God of power, the first thing they feel is fear. What is avoidant and anxious attachment? Both are driven by fear. One clings, goes into rapidly, the other avoids and pushes people away. The basis is in power and the feeling is fear. The Bible is magnificent, everybody. So listen, it diagnoses the issue right away. The Bible is a relationship book and it's telling us here is how you have healthy relationships. You have to have appropriate boundaries. And when the snake pulls the rug out from underneath them, he says, no, no, no. Our world is a world of power. When God says, no, it's a world of love. You got to be secure in that love that God has power, but God isn't power. So now what? What do we do? I want you to do two things. Number one, I want you to place a boundary around your pursuit of power, around your pursuit of Elohim. Here, power feels good. And power, you want to judge, you want to tell, you want to separate, you want to divide. Everything's nice and neat. Okay? It's the path of death. It's the path of death. You can't be fruitful and multiply when everything is separated and in its corner. And we all want the power to make those quick snap judgments. But life is more complicated than that. And for sure, God is more complicated than that. And for sure, all the relationship experts, as I've been saying, will tell you, you got to have a delicate balance between the two. You got to figure out power and love. You have to figure out grace and truth. You're going to have to figure out compassion, looking forward, and judgment, looking in the past. So the first thing I would ask you to do is, do you need to place a boundary around your pursuit of power? And the second thing is this, you need to place a boundary around your pursuit of love. Do not rush into love too quickly. Some of us, like, we don't know people that well, and we just like clinging to them or... Maybe we're running in and sharing way too much information too quickly or thinking that a relationship can develop overnight. Hey, look, we baby-proof our homes and maybe one day Adam and Eve could at the right time, at the right time, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But at this point, they just needed a barrier. Don't touch the stove. Hot. No. Stay away. Song of Solomon, famous verse in the Bible says, 
do not awaken love before it's time. What boundaries do you need to put around your power? What boundaries do you need to put around your love? You need to have strong and healthy relationships and all healthy relationships have one thing in common and that is boundaries. God is not cruel. God is very, very kind. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wisdom that you share with us through your word. If we are operating, God, with an idea in our minds that you are a God of Elohim, help us to understand that you are Yahweh God, a God of love, a God of compassion, a God that we are fully secure with so that we can be secure in our attachment with you and find that all of our other relationships in this world are affected by the security of that love. Thank you, God. In Christ's name, amen.